The Lord be with you. Bless the Lord who forgives all our sins. God's mercy endures forever. We greet you here in the nave of Marsh Chapel this slightly rainy Sunday morning and are grateful for your presence among us. We are grateful this morning also for the ministry of the word brought to us by the Reverend Jennifer Quigley, who will preach our sermon this morning, our chapel associate for vocation and discernment. We are grateful particularly for the presence of the Inner Strength Gospel Choir under the direction of Herb Jones, who will sing our anthems this morning. We are grateful for the presence of the Spirit who warms our hearts in this place. Let us stand as we are able in the praise of God.
Let us pray. O God, whose glory it is always to have mercy, be gracious to all who have gone astray from your ways, and bring them again with penitent hearts and steadfast faith to embrace and hold fast the unchangeable truth of your word, Jesus Christ, your Son, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. In this season of Lent, we participate in the spiritual discipline of metanoia, of conversion, of turning heart, mind, and spirit to God who loves us. As the choir sings our traditional Kyrie, we invite you to participate in this discipline of turning. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Dear friends, as we turn to God and confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thanks be to God. A lesson from St. Paul's Epistle to the Philippians, chapter 3, verse 17 through chapter 4, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, join in imitating me and observe those who live according to the example you have in us. For many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. I have often told you of them, and now I tell you even with tears. Their end is destruction, their God is the belly, and their glory is in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and it is from there that we are expecting a savior the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humiliation that it may be conformed to the body of his glory by the power that he also enables him to make all things subject to himself. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, my beloved. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Please join with me in reading responsively verses from Psalm 27 with the Antiphon. light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and foes 
they shall stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise up against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will set me high on a rock. Now my head is lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. Come, my heart says, seek his face. Your face, Lord, do I seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger, you who have been my help. Do not cast me off. Do not forsake me, O God of my salvation. If my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will take me up. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of mine enemies. Do not give me up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they are breathing out violence. I believe that I shall see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. And now, beloved, rise up in body as you are able, but certainly in heart, for the singing of the Gloria Deo, the reading of the gospel, and the singing of our hymn. Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Luke chapter 9 verses 28 through 43. Glory, Glory to, you, to you, O Lord. Now about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. 
Suddenly, they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep, but since they had stayed awake, they saw his glory in the two men who stood with him. Just as they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and in those days told no one of any of the things they had seen. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. Just then, a man from the crowd shouted, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son. He is my only child. Suddenly, a spirit seizes him, and all at once he shrieks. It convulses him until he foams at the mouth. It mauls him and will scarcely leave him. I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, You faithless and perverse generation, how much longer must I be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon dashed him to the ground in convulsions, but Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And all were astounded at the greatness of God. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. The Gospel from Luke for this second Sunday of Lent might strike you as a little odd, perhaps even disjointed. What does the Transfiguration have to do with an exorcism? Both the congregation and, I will admit, the preacher might have preferred that this excerpt from the ninth chapter of Luke stop 
with verse 36. Before we get to the part with that lovely quote from Jesus that more often finds itself redacted and deployed as a slogan in hate speech or internet trolling than engaged with in many, any meaningful way. But so it goes. The verses march on after verse 36. And in a way, it is helpful from time to time to read a slightly messier lectionary reading because it reminds us that this is how the Gospels are constructed. The authors of our Gospels were compiling the stories and traditions of Jesus and his disciples. And if you sit down to read the middle chapters in the synoptics in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you will find little phrases to string together various parts of the Jesus tradition to create a sequential strand of parables and miracles, teaching and preaching. The gospel writers concerned themselves with a message to a first century audience, and they were not concerned with satisfying a 21st century continuity check. My favorite example of this is found in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus crosses the lake so often it looks as though the disciples are running a ferry service. It is well worth the hour or two it takes to sit down and read one of the synoptics in a single sitting, to pay attention to the beautiful patchwork quilting process that is the gospel. This week, our gospel reading from Luke frames two small patches of that quilt, a transfiguration and an exorcism. One day, the disciples are witness to the greatest heights of humanity's encounter with the divine. They see the possibilities of the better angels of our nature. The very next day, they bumble their way through the ministerial trenches. In fear of the messiness of sin and illness, they fall away from the grace which first overtook them. There are two stories, two days, two lessons to our gospel this morning. The first is familiar, stirring, enchanting the blossoming of faith, the transcendent beauty of assurance. Faith is the joy of the Lord and the church. We love when individuals are overtaken by faith. The second is strange, discomforting, bracing. The growth of faith, the hard work of sanctification. Discipleship is the crown of faith and the church. We long for individuals to become disciples, just as we long for the transformation of the church, the one body, to the body of Christ's glory. Faith is a deeply personal, transformative experience that is often fostered in the midst of community. You hear a word over the radio that touches something deep inside the very fiber of your being. You hear a word that speaks to where you are in your life. You close your eyes and let the forte waves of a choir wash over you. You hear some music that awakens some feeling in you. You have a deeply meaningful conversation. You feel safe enough to ask someone you trust the difficult questions. And you feel a sense of peace deep within your soul. You find your heart strangely warmed. You come to kneel at the altar rail. You accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. Different denominations, local churches, and worship styles have diverse ways of fostering the sort of atmosphere through which God's grace can flow. But the electricity of God's grace is able to be conducted through a number of materials, 
And the result is faith, awakened in the soul. It is important at the outset of Lent to hear a word about faith, about assurance, about presence, about the personal experience of the divine. You heard such a word last week from Dean Hill. It is important to begin Lent with a shoring up of faith, an experience of beauty, learning, comfort, assurance. It nourishes us. It can sustain us for the 40 days of reflection and fasting to come. But after worship on Sunday, after the first few days of Lent, after the first few moments of faith, comes the question, what comes next? What about Monday morning? What about the rest of Lent? What about the rest of life? A preschool put on a production of The Ugly Duckling, the beloved Hans Christian Andersen tale. It combined the best parts of early childhood education, group singing, moving on and off stage in a straight line, a moral lesson, and of course, a crafts project. Each child would make her own set of wings, with help, of course, cutting with safety scissors, using an Elmer's glue bottle, carefully attaching feathers, and filling in the gaps with marker. It was the ideal craft for a small child, messy and fascinating. Almost all the children used bright yellow, big bird color feathers and a sunny yellow marker. These were the ducklings. But one boy and one girl were selected to be the ugly ducklings in the production. They had the same work to do as the other children, cutting, gluing, attaching, coloring. Their feathers, though, were a dull gray-brown. The name of their Crayola marker was more optimistic than it looked, golden beige. But they had to put in twice as much work as their classmates. They had the very rare preschool homework assignment. Each had to make a whole second pair of wings to cut, glue, attach, and color all over again. It took forever, but this time there was glitter. Whole tubes of silver and gold glitter and bright iridescent feathers. Twice the work, to be sure, but this little boy and little girl got to do a quick costume change during the production to exchange their wings to become swans. Don't we all want to be swans? Don't we all want a chance to exchange our wings? To put down the burdensome wings of our sin, our shame, and our old lives? Faith means we get to put down the old wings of our lives, to start over again, to molt the old feathers. And that is beautiful, saving grace that we get a costume change in life. But something happens after that. To put on new wings, to molt, we need to cut, glue, attach, and glitter the new set of wings. We don't do it alone. We do it by the grace of God and with the support of a community of faith. But we still have homework to do. We have help, but we need to make that second pair of wings. In Methodist circles and beyond, we often talk about John Wesley's Aldersgate experience. Wesley's journal entries record the moment, and his words have been edited to a catchphrase of sorts for the conversion experience. I'm sure you know that evening, May 24, 1738, when John Wesley felt his heart strangely warmed. The conversion moment. 
We really focus on it. On May 24, 1738, John Wesley went to a meeting, and on hearing Luther's preface to the Epistle on the Romans, he felt his heart strangely warmed. What happened the next day? What did John Wesley do when he went home that evening? What about when he woke up the next morning? Wesley writes that he went home that evening to pray. But he soon felt the nagging question in his head, this cannot be faith, for where is the joy? He continued to pray late into the night. The next morning, he woke up and went to church and sang a hymn. Again, another nagging question. He writes, if thou dost believe, why is there not a more sensible change? I answered, that I know not, but this I know. I have now peace with God, and I sin not today, and Jesus my master has forbidden me to take thought for the morrow. The next journal entry comes over a week later, June 7th, when John writes that he has decided to go to Germany to spend some time with the Moravians. He writes the following, And I hoped the conversing with these holy men who were themselves living witnesses of the full power of faith and yet able to bear with those that are weak would be a means under God of so establishing my soul that I might go on from faith to faith, from strength to strength. John Wesley's Aldersgate moment, his coming to a deeper and truer sense of his own faith, his conversion moment, did not mean that he never doubted again. It did not mean that he woke up a saint the very next day. And it certainly did not mean that his work as a Christian was done because he had felt assurance. He had to wake up the next day and take the next step. Faith began the hard work. Faith empowered him for the hard work, the cutting and the gluing and pacing of the wings of his new life. After Aldersgate, John Wesley continued to pray, he went to church, he sang hymns, and he went and found others to accompany him on the journey of establishing his soul. John Wesley had begun the process of sanctification. Soon he would be establishing Sunday schools so poor children could learn to read. Soon he would be preaching to crowds in the fields. Soon he would be writing all over the English countryside, establishing meetings, working with the urban poor. These were the next steps in John's lifelong process of growing in faith and faithfulness. And this is what the Lenten journey is all about. Lent is a time of fasting, remembrance, and hopefully growth. Lent is about the long life process of faith. It is about the next day, the next step. Far too often in the church, we act like a bunch of normal-looking ducklings. We don't own up to our status as ugly ducklings. We don't concern ourselves with the work of cutting, gluing, pasting, and glittering our new wings. On the theological right, we demand that all ducklings must look alike to be real ducklings. Our faith cannot be genuine unless we meet certain ideological litmus tests about certain social issues. 
unless we have a very particular conversion experience and unless we offer a convincing testimony of that conversion. We peck at ducklings that don't look like we do, who don't fall into perfect line with all the other ducklings. Our feathers get ruffled too easily. We don't connect our concern with personal piety with a continued dedication to our social holiness. We content ourselves with one set of wings because we don't put in the work to make a new pair. On the theological left, we pretend that our feathers will never molt, that we will maintain the same idealistic, adorable yellow fluff for the duration of our worship, avoiding difficult topics such as sin or evil. We think our faith is enough because we offer a moving experience through our music, our worship, our preaching, because we have the right experience. Or we set out in a cute duckling line to save the world before receiving our police escort, a la Makeweight for Ducklings, back to our ecclesiastical island in the middle of the public garden. We peck at ducklings that don't look like we do who don't fall into perfect line with all the other ducklings. Our feathers get ruffled too easily. We don't connect our concern for social holiness with a continued dedication to our personal piety. We content ourselves with one set of wings because we don't put in the work to make a new pair. If there was one theological doctrine that John Wesley caught the most flack for, it was Christian perfection. John Wesley believed so much in the continued process of growth, healing, and restoration in our lives. He believed that God working in us could truly take away our bent to sinning, as his brother's hymn phrases it. In critiquing this doctrine, people focus too much on the telos, the goal, on the perfection part. Wesley never claimed to get there himself, but what he was really emphasizing was the lifelong journey of sainthood of working hard to become just a little more holy every single day. That is the discipline of the Christian life. Discipline, disciple. Both words come from the Latin discipulus, which originally, before it gets caught up in Christian Latin, refers to a student. Someone who follows a teacher, learns from them, imitates them. When we are called to be and to make disciples, we are called to be and to make students, lifelong students of Christ. Now you may come to Mars Chapel or tune in on the radio because you like the preaching or the fellowship or the music, and those are all good and true things. But I imagine that there is something also drawing you to a community of faith that is grounded in a place of learning, Boston University. There's something invigorating, enlivening, and transforming about working with, worshiping among, and listening to college students. Maybe it reminds you of your own student days. Maybe it connects you to a child or a grandchild that you have in college. Beloved, whether you are a freshman or coming up on your 50th high school reunion, your student days are not behind you. You are called to be a lifelong student of Christ, to continue to learn and grow in faith and wisdom, and to participate in the learning community that is the church. 
It's a little ironic to be sure, but the very best description I've ever encountered for sanctification comes not from John or Charles or any of the Wesleys, but from a Baptist preacher and teacher, a lifelong student, the Reverend Dr. Howard Thurman. The Reverend Dr. Robin Olson used this quote as the focus for our Marsh Chapel winter reading retreat, and I just could not get it out of my head. In the inward journey, Howard Thurman writes, there must be always remaining in the individual life some place for the singing of angels, some place for that which in itself is breathlessly beautiful and by an inherent prerogative throwing all the rest of life into a new and creative relatedness, something that gathers up in itself all the freshets of experience from the drab and commonplace areas of living and glows in one bright light of penetrating beauty and meaning, then passes. The commonplace is shot through with new glory. Old burdens become lighter. Deep and ancient wounds lose much of their old, old hurting. A crown is placed over our heads that for the rest of our lives we are trying to grow tall enough to wear. Despite all the crassness of life, despite all the hardness of life, despite all the harsh discords of life, life is saved by the singing of angels. A crown is placed over our heads that for the rest of our lives we are trying to grow tall enough to wear. We must always open ourselves for the transcendent in life, for the singing of angels. But those moments pass, and then we have some growing to do to reach for that crown. Both are part of the faith journey. This Lent, stand up a little straighter. Try for a little more discipline in your life with your money, your personal choices, your consumption. Grow a little taller. Pray a bit more. Imitate someone whose example you admire. Find a spiritual accountability buddy, an accountability buddy. Reach for that crown. What is that next step in your faith life? Where is your spiritual comfort zone, and how can you get yourself outside of it? Try having a chat with someone outside your age bracket after church today. What is their vision for the church, for Marsh Chapel, for the life of faith? Begin to trace out for yourself a new pair of wings. I'm increasingly convinced that people come to faith, they shadow the walls of our churches, they tune in and sit up when they see sanctification being modeled. There have been plenty of Christian experiments and Christian churches focusing on justification, on that come-to-Jesus moment. But I'm convinced that we're not being honest with people about what it means to be a Christian unless we are telling them about what comes next, unless we are modeling what comes next through our own discipleship, our own process of sanctification. What is the next step for you as a disciple? What is the next step for Marsh Chapel's discipleship? How are we cutting, gluing, pasting, and glittering our way to greater holiness, 
to help create the sort of wings that can bear people up so that they are not dashed against the stones of life. People come to faith when they see a community that models sanctification. This is not an excuse to be holier than thou, but it is, I believe, a truer invitation to a lasting relationship. Beloved, how are we continuing to learn together as a community of faith, as disciples? How are we, as the body of Christ, being conformed to the body of his glory? This Lent, beloved, may we take those next steps toward discipleship, toward holiness in our lives. When we do, both on the mountaintop and back in the messiness of the city, we will be astounded by the greatness of God. Amen. We come to a time in our service where we lift up the prayers of the community. As we sing the call to prayer, lead me, Lord, we would ask that you stay seated, stand, kneel, or come to the altar, as is your tradition. Today's prayer comes from the United Methodist Book of Worship, and when I say the words, Lord, in your mercy, let us pray together, hear our prayer. Grant, Almighty God, that all who confess your name may be united in your truth, live together in your love, and reveal your glory in the world. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Guide the people of this land and of all the nations in the ways of justice and peace, that we may honor one another and serve the common good. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Give us all a reverence for the earth as your creation, that we may use its resources rightly in the service of others and to your honor and glory. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Bless all whose lives are closely linked with ours and grant that we may serve Christ in them and love one another as Christ loves us. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Comfort and heal all those who suffer in body, mind, or spirit. Give them courage and hope in their troubles, and bring them the joy of your salvation. 
Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. We commend to your mercy all who have died, that your will for them may be fulfilled, and we pray that we may share with all your saints in your eternal kingdom. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. And now, as children of God, we are bold to pray the words that Christ taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Peace of the Lord be always with you. We greet you once again here in the nave of Marsh Chapel and invite you to help us get to know one you better so that we can help you get you get to know one another better throughout the coming week by putting your name and your contact information in the red books found along the center aisle of each pew our ritual, and participate in our ritual of friendship. We hope you'll pass those along to your neighbors so that they can participate as well. Following the service today, we invite our undergraduate students to uh, join together with our ministry assistants, Ms. Caitlin White and Mr. Nico Romain Stout, in the narthex to head over to Warren Towers for brunch. Here to make a special announcement about our music program is our director of music, Dr. Scott Allen Jarrett. There are a few of the announcements, but will you first join me in thanking and welcoming our beloved members of the Inner Strength Gospel Choir for their leadership in music and worship this morning. Thank you. They are under the direction of Herb Jones, my dear friend and colleague, and uh, present concerts several times in the year. You can find out information about the Gospel Choir and their concert schedule and their touring on our website, bu.edu slash chapel. We encourage you to do so and support them in this, their 40th anniversary year. So big celebrations coming. Um, 
the Thurman Choir will meet this afternoon. We've been snowed out every time this semester, so we uh, ordered up rain for today. So <laughs> we'll meet downstairs in the Robinson Chapel today at 12.30 uh, to prepare for uh, singing and worship next Sunday. And then finally, uh, we have, uh, over the past six weeks, been observing uh, an anniversary, a bit of a festival for Benjamin Britten. And you'll have noticed that most of the service music in these weeks has been by Britton, and we've had a number of concerts uh, featuring his music. It's been a wonderful experience to uh, observe the, sor the, the service uh, through an aural prism of the music of Britton. And uh, we will end that festival uh, next Sunday. The Thurman Choir will join the chapel choir in singing Britain's Jubilati Deo. That will end the festival. But please mark your calendars. Friday night, this coming Friday night, March 1st, in this room, uh, we'll pre present our final concert. The Cantata Misericordium, the uh, Good Samaritan story, his uh, festival piece for string orchestra, the variations on a theme of Frank Bridge. And uh, we'll put Bach's Good Samaritan Cantata, Cantata 77, alongside of Britain's Cantata. And that will complete our festival. We look forward to seeing you Friday night in this room, 8 o'clock, and then again Sunday morning, 11 o'clock next week. Thank you, Larry. Thank you, Scott. Also, following the service next Sunday, a couple of our chapter members will be hosting a hymn sing. Uh, more information is found in your bulletin or on the chapel website, uh, along with all of our upcoming services and activities at bu.edu chapel, as well as the opportunity for online giving. We hope that as the ushers wait upon us for the morning offering, that you will join us in meditating on the Inner Strength Gospel Choir's singing of Steal Away, arranged by Benny Cummings and their own director, Herb Jones. Now walk in love as Christ loves us, an offering and sacrifice to God.
us pray. O loving and almighty God, God who is our strength in the midst of weakness, God who reminds us who we are at our best, we take this moment to say thank you. Thank you for these gifts, uh, and we ask that these gifts be used for the upbuilding of your kingdom. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.